verse 15, and uh, you'll see how that song goes really, really well with this passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, revealing Jesus as champion. That's what Revelation really does reveal to us. There's all manner of issues that go on in our world, all manner of issues that go on in our lives, and uh, Jesus is the champion of every battle he wages. Amen? So look, if you will, in Revelation uh, chapter 11 and verse 15. Revelation 11 chapter uh, and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. We've seen six angels so far, but now the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Sometimes it looks like things are coming apart when they're actually under control. I was uh, reading about a guy who said that when he was um, six years old, he and his uh, brother who was four sitting on the front pew with their mom, his dad was the pastor. And so his dad's uh, preaching sermon one Sunday, and uh, the little four-year-old got away from mom and went and sat in the big pulpit chair up here. And so he's just sitting here. His dad's preaching. The little four-year-old's just sitting in the pulpit chair. Well, his mom whispered to, to the six-year-old, said, go get your brother. And so uh, he's like, mm, go get your brother. Your mom's too embarrassed to go get him, right? Mom says he's going to send the six-year-old after. So the six-year-old came up here and said, come on down. And he went, no. And so he tried to grab him and pull him down, and the four-year-old took a swing at him. Well, when he did, the six-year-old took a swing back. So now they're fist fighting. <laughs> Mom's on the front pew. Dad's preaching. Four-year-old, six-year-old's fist fighting in the, in the pulpit chair. It looks like the service is coming apart, right? And he said his dad walked over, grabbed both of them by the back of the neck, picked them up, carried them to mom, deposited them on either side, and walked back, never stopped preaching. Preached through the, never missed a beat, preached through the whole time. It looked like it was just about to come apart, but old preacher dad had it under control the whole way through. I like it when preacher dads have things under control, because I never seem like I do, but I like it when somebody else does. Well, what we've been looking at in Revelation is it looks like a world that's absolutely coming apart. I mean, it looks like, I mean, it looks like it's just shattering, but in reality, Jesus is in control every step of the way. So let me kind of catch you up because uh, it's been since Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, since that sixth trumpet sounded. We've had a, an interlude here, okay? And so let me kind of catch you up just real quickly. Uh, the first trumpet sounds, and it brings devastation to the earth itself. Hail and fire mixed together come falling down on the earth. The second trumpet is targeted toward the seas. Um, the sea, a third of the seas turned into the blood. A third of the living creatures in the seas died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third trumpet affects the fresh water. Fresh water on the earth uh, turns bitter, and a lot of people die from trying to drink the bitter water. The fourth trumpet attacks the sky, affecting sun, moon, and stars. Uh, the Bible says that a third of the day was without light, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. And so these four trumpets are affecting everything we need for life, to sustain life on the planet Earth. And then in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, uh, John says, Then as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair calling out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blast a 
about to be sounded by the three other angels. He said, it's fixing to get worse. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then the fifth trumpet sounds, and Satan uh, is kind of released. Remember the uh, locusts with a face like men and hair like women and stingers in their tails? And it seemed like this is sort of kind of demonic influence of uh, some kind of supernatural attack comes on the earth. And then the sixth trumpet sounds, four angels are released along with an army of 200 million, maybe a demonic army, maybe just inspired by Satan. All of this is happening. Then we come to the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet, the word seven, the seven in the uh, Greek means completion. And so you think, man, this is going to be way worse, <laughs> you know. But I said, whoa, 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 it's ramping up, it's ramping up, it's ramping up. And so you're thinking, man, this must be 500 million people. It's going to kill half the planet and all that kind of thing. And then you get to 1115, and when the seventh trumpet sounds, it says, when the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Almost a little bit anticlimactic, isn't it? <laughs> you almost expect something a little bit bigger to happen, and it is going to happen, but it doesn't really take place uh, until chapter 16. What we're going to see tonight is the seventh trumpet sounds, and out of this seventh trumpet, the seven bold judgments, which really pick up in chapter 15. So what's going to happen is, 11:15. we're going to see the rest of this chapter. God's going to tell us some things. And then we got 12, 13, and 14. It's not really going to relate to the seventh trumpet. It's going to take another break. It's going to be a long interlude before we pick up what happens. But in chapter 15, it's a really short chapter in Revelation, and it's just kind of really of a build-up to chapter 16. It's going to pick up where chapter 15 leaves off. But God has some things he wants us to see before that. What we want to see in the seventh trumpet is this. What God is saying is, this is the announcement of Christ's reign as we move to the completion of the period. Christ has it all under control. Christ is the champion. All this stuff looks like it's coming apart. All this stuff looks like nobody's in control. But what he's saying, and we're going to see this in just a second, he's saying is Jesus has won. It's still going on, right? But he's revealing Jesus as the winner right here, right now. It's kind of like we went to the um, uh, state track and field championships this past week. And at the end, you know, the, after the competition, uh, they would call the three. They would announce so-and-so come, come to the platform. And then they would say the winner, you know, the first, second, third place winners. And everybody clapped. And they give them a medal. This is kind of like saying, all right, Jesus is going to the platform while the event's still going on. <laughs> he's getting the medal, he's announced his winner, and he hasn't finished the competition yet. Why? Because we know who wins the battle. That's what we're going to see tonight. So look, if you will, at three things. We're going to talk about how this announcement of the victory trumpet, this is not the rapture trumpet, okay? This is the victory trumpet, and we're going to see how it announces God's victory through war, our response to it through worship, and how the end of it ends up with a huge welcome. All right, let's walk you through it. So first of all, let's get the word war. There are still battles, there's still casualties, but the outcome has been decided. Now watch, look at verse 15, and I want you to watch verb tenses, uh, uh, if you will. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven. They don't identify who the loud voices are, probably angels. I don't know of anything else that really makes sense of who the loud voices would be. So probably angels are the loud voices in heaven, and they say... The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever 
and ever. What's he saying? The replacement of all the kingdoms of this world has happened and Jesus has actually taken over. And it's interesting, in some of the manuscripts that has kingdom, some of the oldest manuscripts, it actually kingdom is singular. The kingdom of this world. And the idea there is the kingdom of this world is not, you know, the physical earth. It's all the people of the world that are opposed to God. And they, the seventh trumpet says, y'all are on the losing team. Christ has actually already won. He's acting to take over. Christ is acting to take over what is rightfully his, and he's going to enforce his rule in a way he hasn't done yet. Because you see, Satan is called what? The God of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the ruler of this world. Now, he only has the power that God grants him. He only can, can do what Jesus allows him to do. But what this announcement is, that Christ is going to enforce the victory in a real and literal way where his will truly is done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll see that in chapter 15 and chapter 16. Now, we really don't get the fullness of this verse until chapter 18, 19, and 20, where the, where the wicked are judged, Christ comes back, sets up his millennial kingdom, and, and, and puts all things right, really, in chapter 20, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. So all this hasn't happened yet, but he writes, now watch this, he writes it, like it's already happened. Notice what he says. The kingdoms of this world have become. Now, it's actually in reality not going to become until a little bit later when he enforces us through. Why does he say it's already happened? In the Greek language, this is what's called the prophetic past tense, where God writes something that's going to happen in the future like it's already happened. And why would God do that? Does God not know verb tenses? Well, of course God knows verb tenses. Why would God write a future event as if it's already happened? Because in the mind of God, watch this, it is so certain and it is so sure and it is so real that even God's not going to change it. It's so, I mean, if something's in the past tense, I mean, it's happened, right? I mean, it's already done. If you look back at who won the World Series in 1982, that's not going to be changed. It's already done. And what God does is write this in the past tense as a way of saying, you, that's why, you can count on this happening. That's why I love the song, we're going to see a victory. It's going to happen. That's why I asked you tonight, what are some things we can praise God for that we haven't seen, but we know we will because God's God does this several times in Scripture. He writes things in the past tense because what? It's as certain as if it's already been done. Um, look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, the New International Version. What's the response of the world to this? What's the response of the world to this? The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come. For, now notice he's writing all this in the past tense. This doesn't really happen to Revelation 18, 19, and 20. But he's written it in the past tense because it's just as sure as it's already happened. The time has come for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. What happens in verse, in, um, in verse 18 here is, We've been in heaven, now we go to the earth. What is the response of the people on earth to the kingship of Jesus? The Bible says they were angry. 
And the word there is a word that means hostility. It's a word that means they were enraged. It's a word that, it's not a word for terror. It's a word for absolute rage against God. You would think by this time, the world would repent. You would think in all the stuff that's going on, all the tragedy, all the heartache, you would think with all the pushing against the very survival of the race, people would be falling down and calling on God, but they're not. Some will. But how many of you know some people are going to fight God to the bitter end and then face the judgment of God? And yet we do it in our own daily lives. The kingship of Jesus is not easy to surrender to, is it? And, and, and how many times have you done this as I have? God's called you to submit an area of your life to him, your time, your money, your attitude, your viewpoint, different things like that. And God's called you to surrender this viewpoint to him, surrender your time, surrender that secret sin to him. And you fought him and you fought him and you fought him. And it was such a relief when you finally surrendered. Amen. And what did you say to yourself? Why did I fight him so long? Why did I surrender this earlier? When I was, before I was a Christian, I would fight against God, fight against God. I would, I would be convicted late in my bed at night. And when I finally got saved, I remember thinking, man, why didn't you do this earlier, man? Why didn't you give in sooner? But these guys don't give in. They fight him. And it's reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm where most messianic psalms Talk about Jesus' first coming. Psalm chapter 2 is talking about his future coming, his second coming. Look at what it says in the New International Version. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. In other words, the kingdoms of the world say what? We're not going to submit to God. We're going to do things. Now, they may not be saying it that way. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to do what we think is right, what we want to do. And we're going to break off the change. We're going to break off this restrictive religion, break off this dominating religion. We're going to break off, do our own thing. What is God's response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king. On Zion, my holy mountain. Once again, writing it in the past tense. What he's saying is there's going to come a day when Christ is literally, physically going to take over. Now, guys, in 50 years from now, all the leaders that you know of that are in power today are going to be dead unless Jesus comes back. Um, the Bidens, the Trumps, the Putins, and the Tutins. <laughs> They're all going to be tooting their own horn as long as they want to. But I'm telling you, in 50 years, they're all going to be gone. And Jesus is still going to be in control. We need not put too much stock in the political leaders. And we need to put too much, not to put too much terror in all the kingdoms and the, the politicians and the dictators and all this kind of stuff. Jesus wins the war completely. Wins it completely. There was a farmer who wrote a, a letter, to, letter to the editor one day in his town, and the editor decided to publish it. And the farmer wrote this. He said, I planted on Sunday, I fertilized on Sunday, I harvested on Sunday, and my yield was greater than the God-fearing farmers who did not. Just kind of an in-your-face kind of a, 
I don't obey God in any of this, and I did better than the rest of the farmers. Then the editor of the newspaper decided to print it, and below it he inserted his own little opinion on the opinion, and he wrote, God does not settle accounts in October. God does not settle accounts in October. Look, it may look like the world's winning or some dictator's winning, but the real battle has already been won. The Gaithers wrote a song called It Is Finished. Some of you remember the Gaithers singing that song, It Is Finished. Some of you remember Dub Peacock singing that song here in our church. In fact, I think one of the first specials I ever heard in this church was, was Dub singing this song. And the song goes like this. There's a line that's been drawn through the ages, and on that line stands the old rugged cross. And on that cross, a battle is raging. The gain of man's soul or his loss. On one side march the forces of evil, all the demons and devils of hell. On the other, the angels of glory, and they meet on Golgotha's hill. The earth shakes, the force of the conflict. The sun refuses to shine, for there hangs God's son in the balance. And then through the darkness he cries, it is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. It's the end of the conflict. It is finished. And Jesus is Lord. And second verse, yet in my heart, the battle was still raging. Not all prisoners of war have come home. There were battlefields of my own making, fighting against God, right? I didn't know that the war had been won. Then I heard the king of all ages had won all the battles for me and that victory was mine for the claiming. And now, praise his name, I am free. It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict. It is finished and Jesus is Lord. He is the champion. So the war Christ has already won, though Satan hasn't felt the full impact of that yet. Secondly, what I want you to see is the response of the, of the war being already won is worship, is worship. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. And the 24 elders who sat before God on the thrones, on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, one who is and was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The 24 elders uh, I believe, as we've talked before, a representative of all God's people of all time, uh, 24 probably representation of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles representing uh, the, all the believers of the Old Testament, believers of the New Testament. I think that's uh, what the, the elders are. And what do they do? They, 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 they have their familiar posture, face down in the presence of God, worshiping God specifically, giving thanks to God for his power. They're thanking God that Jesus has won all the battles. And thanksgiving really is one of the characteristics of the believer. Yes, we get caught up in battles. Yes, we get caught up in struggles. Yes, we get caught up in hard days. But we of all people can stand and say, thank you, Lord. You've already won. Thank you, God. Nobody in this world will ever kick you off your throne. Thank you, Lord. The victory for my soul, the victory for my healing, the victory for my struggle against sin has already been decided. We can be a people of thanksgiving. I read or heard a guy talk about uh, he and his uh, three college roommates um, they just, they just weren't good cooks. They roomed together. They weren't terrible cooks. They just said none of us could cook well at all. And he said we had one guy in, in, in our room. It wasn't a dorm. It was actually an apartment. And he said one guy after every meal would always say, I have a mighty fine meal. <laughs> and he said one day uh, this guy was telling a story. He said that he cooked. He said it was especially bad. It was horrible. It was 
terrible. College guys trying to cook meals. Some college kids can cook. These are just terrible. And he said after he finished, the guy said, boy, that's a mighty fine meal. And the guy said, man, why do you say that every time? This feels terrible. <laughs> why do you always say it's a mighty fine meal? He said, well, I come from a large family. He said, about eight of us kids or so. And uh, one night, I remember growing up, uh, we sat down to eat, and there was a pile of hay on everybody's plate, just a little pile of hay. And somebody said, what's this pile of hay doing on my plate? And the mom said, oh, somebody noticed and said something about what's on their plate. I can't remember anybody noticing and saying anything about what's been on their plate for so long that it's just, I just thought maybe I'd just put hay on there and see how that went with y'all. He said, ever since that day, I've always said, that's a mighty fine meal. <laughs> he didn't want no more hay for supper, right? <laughs> that's a mighty fine meal right there. Hey, any day with Jesus is better than a day without him, right? It's a, we need to walk and worship and thanksgiving. They are specifically worshiping him for his defeat of all the earthly kingdoms. And the earthly kingdoms are the kingdoms against God. The mankind in opposition to the kingship of Jesus. And Jesus Christ will rule clearly and effectively and absolutely one day. And we know that's not happening today, right? We haven't seen it. I mean, he's in control, but he's not enforcing his rule like he will one day. And all you got to do is turn on the news. I was turning on the news the other day, and um, it was another country with refugees fleeing from it. You know, refugees are fleeing their countries. It's not because the rulers are doing such a good job. It's because they're doing a terrible job. It's because they're self-centered and selfish and ineffective and looking out for themselves. And I just, got, I just thought I'd look it up. And, and here's it's fairly recent, not up to, completely up to date, but within several months ago, the um, number of refugees from the leading countries, the Syrian Arab Republic has 6.8 million refugees fleeing from them right now. Ukraine has 5.4 million of Afghanistan, 2.8 million. South Sudan, 2.3 million. Myanmar, 1.2 million. All of that going on, that many people, just, they don't want to leave their countries. They have to because of the evil rulers that are in place. One day, there's going to be no need for refugees, amen? Because Jesus is going to be king and we can choose Jesus as our king, choose to worship him today and choose to live under his rule today. And that's what they're, they're, they're worshiping him. They're thanking him. One of the things I've noticed in Revelation that I would love for us to really clue in on tonight is how worship is different in different chapters. Worship is not just the same thing every time, but they're in tune with what's happening with God, okay? They're in tune with what's happening with God. Over in uh, Revelation chapter 8, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Here in Revelation chapter 11, we've got loud voices talking in heaven. We've got trumpets blowing in heaven. You've got the, 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 the 24 elders face down on their face before God. Look, sometimes in worship, we just need to be quiet. Sometimes in worship, we need to be loud. Sometimes in worship, we need to be face down. We even had a friend of mine ask me not too long ago. He said, in your quiet time, do you ever find yourself just face with your nose stuck in the carpet before God? I said, yes. 
Why? You respond to what God is doing. And sometimes it's a, t- it's a time for joy. Sometimes it's time for weeping. And I don't want us to get caught in a situation where we're just listening and we're not responding to what God's doing. Sometimes it's singing loud. Sometimes it's hands raised. Sometimes it's weeping on an altar. Sometimes it's sitting and contemplating what God is saying. But we need to respond to what God is doing in our worship time. We are thanking God tonight that he won the war. It's been settled. That caused for great worship and thanksgiving from his people. And then last of all, look at the, well, I want you to see the welcome that we see here in Revelation chapter 11. What a great word of victory. What a, I mean, this is a huge victory. Look, if you will, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. When the nations were angry and your wrath has come, in the time of the dead, they should be judged. Watch this. And you should reward your servants. Who is he going to reward? Watch this. The prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. (laughs) So what we see here in heaven is it said that God's going to reward his prophets and the saints and all people great and small. What's he talking about? Everybody that belongs to him. Everybody that belongs to him. The words great and small are used about 40 times in the Old Testament. And it's a phrase that means everybody. Okay, small and great. And so God is saying here that the, the temple has been opened in heaven. They see the Ark of the Covenant. And what is he saying? In the midst of all the judgments, in the midst of thunderings and hailstorms and all this stuff, God opens up heaven itself and says what? It's an opening up into the holy of holies. Sometimes we say we get to go into the very throne room of God. And this is one of the verses we get that from. God, in the midst of judging people that have not been covered by the blood of Christ, who have rejected him in the midst of that, in the midst of all the terror on the earth, God says what? Come up close. Come up close. He opens the temple. And then when it says, and they saw the Ark of the Covenant, I don't know if this is a literal temple or literal ark or this is symbolic of God saying, come get in as close as you want to. Because you see, the ark of the covenant in the times of the temple was the holiest place on earth. I mean, they couldn't even go in there, but one person, one time a year. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. But only the, only the high priest entered the inner room. That's where the ark of the covenant was. And that only once a year, never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people who had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing that by this, the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. But now what's extraordinary here, the ark and the the holy of holies is opened up for everybody. Anybody that wants to get as close to God as they wanted to, can. The ark was covered with a veil in the Old Testament. You couldn't go, you and I couldn't go in there. That's the, holy, that's the place where God met mankind on the earth. And now God throws his arms open and he says, into this holiest of holy places, you are invited. Because what? The blood has been shed. 
It's interesting, you look at the Ark of the Covenant. The last time we hear the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is the Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 35, verse 3, where King Josiah, remember the temple had fallen in disrepair, they'd lost the book of the law, and there was a short-term revival under King Josiah, and he uh, had the Ark put back into the Holy of Holies, and that's the last time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in the Old Testament. We don't know what happened to it. Probably in 586 B.C., when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, he burned the temple to the ground and took off all the, uh, the valuables out of the temple. So very, very likely the ark either got burned or it got taken away, um, got taken away by Nebuchadnezzar. There's a Jewish legend, and it's just legend, y'all. There's a Jewish legend that says Jeremiah saw it coming and he took the ark and hid it somewhere. Who knows? The idea, this is not Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is not, if you look at this piece of furniture, you get them, face is going to melt. You know, that's not, that's not what this is about. What this is about is God saying everybody is as welcome as they can be to get as close as you want to, to God himself. I mentioned a couple of times I've been reading a book by uh, Katie Davis Majors, and uh, she talks, I was reading this afternoon a little bit, and uh, she said a good friend prayed over me a few years ago, Lord, help us to remember that it ends, listen to this, with us, with you. That it ends with us, with you. So I want you to think back to this for a second tonight. What's the most welcoming place you can remember? What's, uh, what's the most welcoming place that you think you've ever been? Uh, try to get outside of your own, own home. Uh, for many of us, maybe a grandmother's, grandfather's home, maybe an aunt or uncle, maybe a, a retreat somewhere that you went to somewhere or another. Where's the most welcoming place you've ever been I when I thought about that question I thought about my grandparents uh, Mississippi and Pap that's another story um, but especially during the winter we would go up before daylight because uh, me and daddy would go squirrel hunting together so we drive up before daylight and I can still remember there was a dirt road back then in the about a 75 100 yard driveway uh, up to their house you can see that house sitting up there you just see that little light in that house and we get up in the dark and start walking up those steps up to the house. And you hear that screen door. He makes that little screen door. The screen door open up. And uh, my grandfather just kind of hear, <laughs> just kind of laugh, you know. And y'all come on in, I think. I think Andy Grace has something cooked up for y'all in there. And uh, that's, when, that's when they had the fireplace. And that big fire roaring in that fireplace. And it was warm. And you get there like that rotisserie chicken, you back up to the fireplace, you know, and then you do this, and then you do this. <laughs> you get, never could get all warm, you know. You just kind of rotate uh, that way. And then you smell that sausage frying and the eggs. Yeah. She had hot cocoa for us kids, you know, because they wouldn't let us drink coffee. They had co coffee for them. And then homemade biscuits, some of the best biscuits in the world. <laughs> I asked her one day, I said, how did you learn to make biscuits so good? She said, anything you do every day for 70 years, you ought to be good at and go in there and she just wrap you up in that big hug and the warmth of that house against the cold just and you just felt welcome and that doesn't compare to the welcome that God has for those who belong to him would you stand please with his bow and eyes closed as Lisa comes to the piano to play softly tonight Revelation 11 crowns Jesus as champion even though haven't seen it in its entirety yet, haven't seen 
him enforce that in its reality like it's going to be one day, but it's just as certain as if it's already happened. We're going to worship when it happens, but man, why not worship on the way? Why not worship in advance, in faith, in hope that God is going to do what he's said he will do and what he's written in the past tense. Father in heaven, we thank you tonight. We don't have to wonder how this turns out. Lord, we may not know what a particular sickness or a particular uh, difficulty or a particular trial, we may not know how that's going to, particular thing's going to turn out, but we know how this thing turns out in the end. Jesus wins. He is our champion. Help us, O oh Lord, to worship you as you deserve to be worshipped.